You never know what might happen around here. And one thing I want to call your attention to is if you're using the faith talk uh, to discuss with your family the sermon every week, this is not the right faith talk. This is the one from John 11, 38 through 46. So uh, we will try to rectify that. Uh, and next week you can have one to talk about this week too, I guess. I guess the wrong one got printed somehow through the printer. Anyway, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel, beginning in verse 21. Now, if you recall last week, as we were talking about this episode where the ministry of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, has come to an end. He has withdrawn himself from the, uh, from the masses. His evangelistic work, at least for now, is over. And starting in verse 13, all the way through verse 17, he is occupying himself with his disciples with those who have been with him for three and a half years. And the call to repentance and faith, at least for now, has been closed down. Now, it will reopen after the cross and the resurrection. And at that point, the commission will be given to you and me that we are to take that message forth into the world in which we live. But the point is that right now, in these next chapters, Jesus is drawing close to those whom he has called to be his disciples. We saw last week that even as they gathered and he washed their feet at that last supper, it was a strange thing for him to do, and the disciples recoiled against it, especially Peter who said, you're not going to wash my feet. And he said, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And he said, then wash my whole body. And Jesus almost had to have been chuckling when he said, it's not your body that needs washing, but just your feet. That's what's dirty because you've been washed by the word. So we saw that, and, and he said, you're already clean because of the word that's washed, because of my work in your life, but not all of you are clean. Now, giving an implication, giving a hint, if you will, that there's somebody there that does not really and fully, completely belong there. The chapter, or the section we're going to look at in this chapter today, we'll talk about that one. We know him as Judas. That name by itself just conjures up all sorts of negative thoughts about betrayal and dishonesty and, and, and turning on people, turning on a friend. If you have someone that does that to you, you, you refer to them as a Judas because they have betrayed you, let you down, done something against you. And that's about, that is what is about to start taking place in this particular passage. You'll notice after this passage, if you or one who has a red-letter Bible. You know how I feel about those, because the red letters and the black letters are all the Word of God. But if you'll notice, after today's passage, it, it's almost entirely red for the rest of the passage uh, section through chapter 17. Because now Jesus is beginning to give his final discourse, his final words about what is going to take place and what they're to be prepared for. It's a great section on Christian growth. It's a great section on what it means to walk in him, and we're going to learn much from it as he teaches us. But hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 13. 
When Jesus had said this, now what had he said? He said, well, truly I say to you that he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me has sent he, uh, receives him uh, who sent me. He's already talking about this sending out. He's been sent by the Father, and he's sending us out. And he said, when he had said these things, he became troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Now, he's already said to these 12 that are there with him, you've all been made clean, but not all of you, implying that something significant was about to happen. Now he says, out in the open, clearly I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was talking about. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about? All of them were perplexed. They were all looking at one another. Is it going to be him or him or him? Maybe even... Is he saying, I'm going to do this dastardly deed? Who is it going to be? Who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. That was an act of, of friendship. That was an act of generosity. That was an act of honor to some degree. If you were at the table in a special feast with the host, who Jesus here is serving the host, and he would dip into the bowl and bring out a morsel of bread or sometimes a morsel of meat and would hand it to the person, that was, a, that was an act of friendship. We'll see how that shows even the patience and the grace of Christ right up to the very end. So when he had dipped it, the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel... Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, that is to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, he was the treasurer, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the coming feast or else that he should go out on the Sabbath here, on this, on this holy day of Passover, and, and give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. I think John means more by that statement, it is night, than just it was after 6 p.m. And we'll see what that is in a minute. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. This is the word of our Lord. Isn't it amazing in verse 31 how Jesus, has, after encountering all this time in the upper room, at the Last Supper with his disciples, he, he starts by saying, or John starts saying, therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said. There's almost like a <sighs> point there. 
Have you ever been in a group of people and, and you're talking, maybe they're, maybe they're close friends and you're having this discussion, and there's one person who just wants to dominate everything, you know, he wants to talk about his problems, he wants to talk about his needs, he, wants to, he never gives anybody else a chance to talk, and, and all the focus is on him, and all the focus is, all the attention is drawn to him, and, and then at some point he goes out for some reason, and then it's almost like everybody in the room, you're seven clues, okay, now we can talk about something that we need to talk about. There, there's that relief. It's the kind of thing that takes place here almost, because all the focus for the last little bit has been on Judas the one who's going to betray, the one who's going to go out and sell out his friend, his Lord, without any corruption, without any, without any withdrawing back from it. He's going to do that. Now he's gone out, and Jesus begins to address the disciples and begins this final discourse. But, but I want you to understand that in this room, as these disciples are gathered here, there continues to be, even at this point, Perhaps especially at this point, this, this spirit of confusion, this spirit of not knowing, this, this misunderstanding. Why can he not stay? You know, there are all sorts of ideas and theories put forth as to why Judas did what he did. To try to explain it in some kind of human terms. Some have said, well, you know, Judas was really just trying to push Jesus a little bit to come on and declare his kingdom and take over Jerusalem from, from the... Uh, uh, from the Romans and to run them out, that, that Judas really had this idea that if he went out and started this emotion, Jesus would be forced to rise up and say, stop and destroy the Romans and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. They, they give Judas a lot of credit there in thinking that he can push Jesus into doing something that he does not intend to do, but some have said that. Others have said Judas really decided, you know, got to thinking Jesus is, is getting this messianic complex and, and I'm worried about him. He's my friend and, and maybe if I go and, and, and turn him into the authorities and, and we can get some help for him, that he can be taken out and, and, and can be cared for and, and not get himself in the mess that he's getting himself into. John makes no excuse for Judas' actions, nor does Jesus. John says, and Jesus points to the fact that this was something that Satan was putting in his heart, that he was the one for, that Jesus knew all along. He's not surprised by this, that this would be the one who would betray him and who would turn him over to the authorities. It was taking place. It was happening right now. It was something that Jesus makes very clear in this passage is not something that Judas or Satan or anybody else was forcing his hand on and forcing him into. I want you to see in this passage in the upper room that one thing Jesus makes very clear, I am giving myself, I am giving myself up to what is about to come, this passion experience, this cross experience. I am giving myself over to death by my own volition, by my own choice, by my own freedom, by my own purpose, and nobody absolutely nobody is making me do that and forcing my hand in any way you know as we look at this passion week started or these passion days passion week is already in place here but as we watch this these passion events start to take place i want you to remember this very carefully that if you're here and a believer this morning jesus went to the cross for one purpose and that was that you might be saved out of your sin. He didn't go there just to be an example to you. 
if he'd gone there just to be an example, and if an example was all we needed, we would find out very quickly in this passage that an example is not enough. Judas had the example, folks. Judas had the example before him for three and a half years. He saw the love. He saw the grace. He saw the justice. He saw the righteousness of Jesus. He saw everything about him. And yet he never believed. You know, we live in a day where belief is sometimes misunderstood to be just, I believe that. I believe that Jesus is a unique individual. I believe that the Word of God is, is the story of Jesus and of His sacrifice. I believe that all those things are true. But a day in which really understanding that there's a great difference in between, in, between believing that and believing in. Judas believed that Jesus was a unique prophet at least. Judas believed that Jesus had done all these miracles. He had seen them with his own eyes. He believed that he was a great teacher. But Judas never believed in Jesus as the Messiah. There are a lot of people in our day right now who will believe that Jesus is important, will believe that maybe he did come from God indeed, but who fail to believe in him with all their heart all their soul all their might and all their strength this is what jesus is bringing us to see as he comes to this final discourse and he begins to show that i'm in control of these matters i'm not having my hand forced and all of this is happening by the plan of god peter will refer to that in acts chapter 2 on the day of pentecost when he looks at those who are standing there and says, you put him to death by evil hands, by the preordained counsel of the Father. It was not forced by, you were used, your sins placed him there, but God has planned it and purposed it and, and set it in motion, and God is the one that is using this not as, a, not as the tragedy it appears to be, humanly speaking, but as the glorious redemption of his people from their sin. Also, Jesus says, and John says, I want you to see that. This upper room experience tells us that. But then he tells Judas, go and do what you're going to do quickly. In other words, don't put it off any longer. The time is here. You've been plotting this. You've been planning this. I've known that. It's troubled my spirit because I, Judas, I I, I wish so much that you could see the truth and see the light, but you don't. So, so whatever you're going to do, just go and do it quickly. And he sent him out. And when he had gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. In other words, in these next hours, to these 11 that are left, in these next hours, you're going to see God do a work of glory in a way like you can't imagine. It's going to be immediate. It's going to be quick. And you're going to be amazed. You're going to be awed by it. And you're going to misunderstand it. You're going to run. You're going to hide. You're going to feel like you're just like Judas. But remember this, you're not. 
keep watching what's taking place. And he's going to show them that through these next chapters. I want you to see that clearly. But, but I think the question that we ask out of these two primary verses this morning, 31 and 32, is how is glory seen in the death of Christ? He says that's what's about to happen, about to happen immediately. But how is glory, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, seen in his death? Many of those around, including those disciples, probably thought the way to see the glory of Christ is by a dramatic military victory. The way to see the glory of Christ is to see him come in and drive the Romans out and drive the Pharisees out and drive the Sadducees out and show them the falsehood of their false legalism that sets before them. How can glory be seen in death? Well, there's several reasons I think Jesus wanted to see. First of all, I, I want you to understand, as the first point of this idea of glory being seen in his death, something that our world cannot understand, and probably some sitting in this room may not be able to fully understand, and that is simply this. The crucifixion is undoubtedly the central and most significant point in world history. Everything that came before it, Everything that has come since it and everything that will come in the future pales in comparison to the significance and the importance and the centrality of his death. Today we look at events that take place. A few years back when I was in college, the walking on the moon, we, we think about people going to outer or, or sending uh, spaceships to the outer reaches of space. We say, that's a great event. That's a great time. We, we think about election of different officers or, or politicians as being, oh, that's a great, significant event. Nothing ever compares to that cross as the central and most significant event that ever took place in world history. World history points to that forward and back. The Old Testament pointed to the coming of the cross. Everything in the New Testament and beyond and everything we preach and everything we believe points back to that cross. You take that cross out and you destroy Christianity. You take that cross and it's subsequent, the resurrection out of it, and Christianity is nothing. Someone has written that they have found a, a tomb. You've read this, no doubt, in some of the secular newspapers that they found a tomb that they're, they're convinced is the is the, is the tomb of Jesus, and there, there are bones in that tomb, and they're, they're, they're ready to try to prove now that those bones are the bones of Jesus. And, and one scientist said, well, it really won't make any difference if the bones are there or not. It'll make all the difference in the world. Because the Scripture tells us, and history tells us, that Jesus Christ and his bones are not laying somewhere in a tomb that his bones were resurrected when he was resurrected with a glorified body, but he didn't leave his bones behind. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It was a physical, real resurrection. And so that resurrection points to that cross as being the central, significant event of all world history. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ in the death of Christ because it reversed the conduct of the first Adam and thus turn the history of our race totally on its head. The human race. When Adam in the garden sinned, it set everything in motion. We became susceptible. We became bent towards sinning and, and, and rebelling against God and wanting our own way and declaring that we had a right 
to, to choose our own course. You know, we were going to be the masters of our own destiny. And that's what the fall was all about. In the death of Christ, he reversed that to his own glory. Paul deals with that extensively in, in Romans chapter 5. Hear the words of, of Paul here. He says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. The transgression was in the garden. The free gift is the gift of grace, the gift of Christ. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the transgressions from many transgressions, resulting in justification. In other words, one sin brought transgression into the world, and we all had transgressions, and all of those transgressions brought about the gift that took place on the cross. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Paul says, in the cross, we see everything turned around. We see the, the garden experience for those who receive the grace, those who believe. We see the garden experience reversed in their life to where now we don't just know transgression, but we know righteousness, not righteousness of our own, but righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us third thing not only is it central to history and not only does it turn history of our race around and on its head we find that in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 the death of the lord jesus also reversed the power of satan and brought to an end the power of his reign the writer of hebrews said therefore in 2 14 therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He took on flesh and blood. That through death, on the cross, through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Isn't it amazing? Here we have in the upper room Jesus saying that, uh, and John saying that the, the devil had entered, Satan had entered into to Judas. And Jesus saying to him, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And he goes out and he carries out that plan. He sets things in motion that will lead to the cross. But when he gets to the cross, the very power that entered into Judas, the very power that looked like it was going to rule and reign and win, is defeated in that cross. Rendered powerless the writer of hebrews said so that when he hung on that cross and we'll see it in, in a couple of months when he hung on that cross and he cried out with a voice it is finished he wasn't talking about the end of his life he wasn't talking about the end of his reign he wasn't talking about the end of his power he was talking about the end of the one who sought to put him there and thought he was winning and in the end was defeated so we have it as central we have it reversing history we have it rendering powerless the evil one that's how the glory of christ is seen in the cross of christ but how is the father glorified it's because jesus says here 
the Son of Man himself is glorified, and God the Father is glorified in him. And if God has glorified him, God will also glory him, glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Well, there are several things you see about God in the cross. Several things you'll see about God as Jesus gives this final discourse that leads up to the cross. And I want you to understand the importance of it. Because in reality, you're going to see about four things about God. You're first of all going to see the justice of God revealed in the cross. We know that in Scripture it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of the perfect Lamb of God, without there being sacrifice given and substitution taking place, we are, we are going to have to pay for that sin ourselves, that we are responsible for it, we are the ones who did it, we are the ones who carried it out, and, and unless something takes our place, then we've got to pay that debt. And that's God's justice. But on the cross, we see that Jesus hanging there was, was demonstrating God's justice and taking our sin and placing it on him. Paul again said in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For this is the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, the righteousness of God, so that he, that is God the Father, would be just, his justice, and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. See, the justice of God, the wrath of God, as we sometimes sing in that great hymn, In Christ Alone, the justice of God, the wrath of God is satisfied at the cross. And seeing his justice there, seeing the darkness of that hour, we see the glory of God's justice that must be fulfilled. Second, we see his holiness in the cross. We see God being glorified because of his justice, because of his holiness. We could go all through Scripture and see that holiness is, the, is that core attribute of God. When, when Isaiah saw the vision of God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, he heard the angels, the seraphim, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The earth is filled with his glory. It's his holiness that is putting Christ on the cross so that he can forgive those who have faith in Jesus. Not faith about Jesus. Not faith that Jesus is. But faith in him. Trust in him. You know, Habakkuk said in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, which Brother Scott will be preaching on tonight, he said, uh, Habakkuk said, that his eyes are so pure that they cannot behold evil. They cannot look upon iniquity. That's why on the cross we'll see the, uh, Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore our sin, the Father looked away. We see that Paul tells in Galatians that Christ was made a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. He became a curse on the cross. He was made accursed because of our sin. See in that death God's holiness. He cannot receive into his presence, you and me, if our sins are still intact. And if they're not paid for, if they're not dealt with, if they're not removed and cleansed, we cannot stand in his presence. 
Thirdly, God is glorified, the Father is glorified in the cross as we see the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God revealed here. The Old Testament promise was always through the prophets and through the, the law and through the poetic literature like Psalms and others, the Psalms and others. It was always that God is promising a deliverer. At times they gave up. At times they couldn't believe it. At times they thought, well, where is this deliverer? And they tried to make all sorts of different people their deliverer. I mean, even, even de declaring that they wanted a king like all the other nations when, they, when God had said he would be their king. But that wasn't good enough. They, they so wanted a deliverer but struggled sometimes to see the deliverer in his timing. But God is showing us in the cross that he is faithful. He is faithful to the end. You have Adam and Eve in the garden rebelling and him immediately saying after that that there will come one, the seed, who will come and who will change all that. For generation after generation after generation they waited until right at the right time, in the fullness of time, Christ came. And he died in our place as our substitute, as a perfect sacrifice. So we see his justice, we see his holiness, we see his faithfulness. But finally, in the cross, the Father is glorified by showing us and demonstrating his love. We sang about that, we sing about that all the time. That our God is a God of love. God of grace, he's a God of mercy, but he's primarily, we think about him as a God of love. It's a holy love, it's a righteous love, it's a, it's a just love, it's a faithful love, but it's, it's love. John tells us in his little epistle, for we know this, that God is love, period. It's an attribute that we like to think about. Nothing in all of history reveals God's love any better, any more clearly than the cross. It's by love that he went there. John, uh, Paul said in Romans 5.8, he said, but God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, that is, we were outside the covenant of grace, we were outside of a relationship with God. We, we didn't know it. We were rebellious. We were living in our natural state. And even while we were there, Christ died for us. And the grace of God touched us and called us and drew us, and, and we believed in Him by faith. Faith in Jesus, as He said in Romans 3.26. Faith in the Son of God. Faith in the Redeemer, faith in the Savior, all those show His love. So, so great is this revelation of His love that God appeals to it, to the cross, as proof of His love. While we were sinners, 
He loved us so much. He demonstrates his love so much that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when Jesus says, now the Son is glorified and the Father is glorified and God is going to be glorified in the Son and God will also glorify him in himself and, and that glory will be immediate, he's going to now take the next chapters and say, now listen, that glory that is seen in the cross that's coming, that glory that you're going to see of the Son and the Father, that glory is the glory that you will come into as you put your faith and trust in Christ. And your purpose, your goal, your meaning in life will come in bringing glory to that one. See, we don't live for ourselves. It's not about us. It's about Him. Now, you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, then that doesn't make a bit of sense to you. It really doesn't. And I understand that. I understand that if you're here and you don't know Christ, then everything's about you. If you're happy, if you're wealthy, if you're comfortable, if, you're, if everything's going your way, everything's about you. It's not about glory, glorifying God. Through Jesus. But I remind you that the door is open. The invitation is there to come to Christ. See what it means to know the glory of Christ in your life and to to be able to, to glorify Him through your life and in your life. To point to His redemption. You know, Jesus is saying here, disciples as i said in 17 he's going to say now all this was not just for those 11 therefore it's for you and me too who believe because of their faithfulness because of their word disciples at grace baptist church in somerset kentucky in 2013 behold his glory behold his glory know him through faith in christ trust in him Come to Him. Believe in Him. And He will give you light. Open your eyes to see. And He will give you life. Transforming you out of, the, out of His judgment. Out of darkness. Into the kingdom of His glorious light. Jesus has closed the evangelism to those in Jerusalem. But it's still, it is open again to you and me if you're here this morning you know christ but you've just kind of grown cold grown indifferent i remind you that what he's saying here is for you and me that we are to behold his glory and seek to glorify him in all of our life in everything to lift him up Part of why we're doing apologetics on, during the Sunday school hour for the next quarter is because, as, as one guy, I, use, I don't usually talk about tweeting during the sermon, but as one guy tweeted yesterday that I saw his tweet, Lee Strobel, he said, you know, if you don't think apologetics is important for every believer today, then it's obvious you haven't shared your faith with anybody lately. Because the questions are there. The questions are burning. And, and we don't live in a day anymore where you just say, oh, just because. Why do you believe? 
Peter said, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready to give a reason to those who ask why you trust Christ. What is your reason? Just because is not good enough. Jesus said, I want you to understand, something about, is about to happen immediately, something is about to happen cataclysmically that's going to change the entirety of the world. And by his grace, you and I who are in Christ have been included in that. Let's pray together. We know that Jesus is preparing those 11, for that which we already know to be a reality. We have a benefit over them. We look back sometimes and say, but they were with him. Wouldn't it have been great to be with him in that upper room? No, it would have been very, very confusing. It have been very discouraging in one sense to have been there and Wanting Jesus to become the Messiah, to set up a kingdom, not to die. Because he didn't understand at that point the fullness of the meaning of that death. We have the benefit of seeing that from after the fact. And by his Holy Spirit, he calls us to believe. He says, trust. He said, call out to me. I will hear you. I will hear you and I will give you life. Acknowledge that you are in rebellion against him. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. And I will forgive, he says, on the basis of the work of Christ. Father, Lord God, you do your work in our lives, both believer and unbeliever alike this morning. Father, draw us closer to you. Show us your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is Receive the Glory. Talking about